नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट माय गेस्ट टुडे इज स्वामी पूर्ण चैतन्य एंड वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट हिज बुक लुकिंग इन वर्ड एंड मेनी अदर थिंग्स सो जस्ट टू गिव यू गाइस अ ब्रीफ बैकग्राउंड आई हैड द प्रिविलेज ऑफ मीटिंग स्वामी जी एट द अर्थ फेस्टिवल इन डेली रिसेंटली एंड वाइल वी डिड टच अपॉन अ फ्यू सब्जेक्ट्स अबाउट द बुक एंड फ्यू जनरल सब्जेक्ट्स आई वाज नॉट सेटिस्फाइड विद द चैट एंड आई रीच्ड आउट टू स्वामी जी एंड आई टोल्ड हिम वुड यू लाइक टू कम बैक अगेन ऑन द पॉडकास्ट फॉर अ चैट एंड यू नो ही वाज काइंड इनफ एंड सेड यस कुशल फिर से बात करते हैं सो स्वामी जी वेलकम थैंक यू सो मच कुशल आई ट्रूली लुक फॉरवर्ड टू आवर कन्वर्सेशन So Swami ji as this is your first time on the podcast uh can I request you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your journey okay a little bit so basically um kushal and everybody else who's listening um i was born and brought up in the netherlands um so that way my roots are very much dutch uh, i went to university there i did all my uh, good things all my mischief on dutch soil Um however I do have a little bit of Indian DNA if I'm very honest my mother um was born in Delhi and her father was Indian so even though her mother was from Holland um she was half Indian uh, she grew up in the Netherlands um so she didn't speak any Hindi uh, but uh, that does make me 25% Punjabi to be uh, officially correct um but then after uh, growing up in the Netherlands um actually from a very young age I had a very keen interest in the eastern traditions um, maybe some of it was also because at home um you know there was a small buddha statue uh, my father loved uh, movies like star wars uh, the karate kid and um, personally i had a strong um, liking also for martial arts i used to practice different eastern martial arts and then along the way i found that uh, when we started exploring a little bit more about life um, about philosophy as well Uh, for example in high school there we learned about the different religions and whatever i learned whatever i read somehow i felt that the eastern traditions were much more practical in their approach uh, i also studied some of the i mean basics compared to you of the western philosophy but then um somehow to me it, it seemed a little bit more theoretical like it was definitely very interesting but then the eastern approach somehow was uh, for me seem to be more integrated into life like practically how do you interact with the people around you what do you how do you go about living your life so um as i grew up i found that i wanted to learn more and then at the age of 16 in amsterdam out of all places i met uh the person i now call my master uh, gurudev shri ravi shankar ji he had come there for a public talk uh, a discourse on human values and spirituality uh, in the year 2000 So when I heard about it when someone said that uh, a spiritual master from India is coming for a lecture for a discourse uh, to me that sounded fascinating I've never met a spiritual master from India so I went there and um the the white robes long beard hair it it matched you can say a little bit the the image of a, a spiritual master or a saint but then what really touched me was that his approach was very practical he was very natural it wasn't uh, any hi-fi language or uh, you know complicated discussion uh, rather his is actually his language was very simple but then it was very profound it was not that he was just you know uh, talking about some superficial things so that is something that touched me that someone who is so natural who feels so at home uh, he's not talking down on you or looking down on you but at the same time he definitely um 
there was something about him and, and the words that he shared, the, the things, the insights that he shared there that really clicked where I felt, oh, yes, this is, this is right. You know, he, he makes total sense. And uh, he conducted a guided meditation, which uh, was a unique experience for me in the sense that it felt like two minutes, but 25 minutes went like that. So then I felt, okay, yes, now I have found someone who can actually teach me some of these things. So I started doing some of the programs that he offered, uh, that the organization Art of Living uh, offered there in the Netherlands. Then I went to different parts of Europe. I went, him, I went to meet him again. When he came a few times a year, he would come to conduct a meditation retreat or something like that. And then after I completed my studies, um, I studied Indology, by the way. So uh, language and culture of India and Tibet, which is quite unique in Holland, because honestly, who wants to study that? <laughs> It's not a, a great option for your career or something. You have very limited options. But for me, it was the, the, the keenness to learn more about the Eastern traditions. So about Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, uh, the different uh, Indian religions, the history. And also I wanted to learn Sanskrit because whatever little I had seen experience of mantras, of the, the Vedic ceremonies was something magical. So I studied that uh, along with journalism. And when I completed that, I felt that I really need to go to India if I want to really go a little deeper. Because one funny incident maybe is that I remember when we joined university, there was a, uh, a day to meet your faculties and, you know, the professors before you actually start your first semester. And like I said, we were a handful of people, maybe 10, 10 15 people maximum, uh, which everybody knew would at least become half, if not less, by the second year. <laughs> So we were sitting there in this little library, a uh, little bit like the background that you have there on uh, behind you, lots of books. And they introduced us to the different uh, teachers, professors. And the gentleman who was uh, the head of the department and who would be our Sanskrit uh, professor looked like he probably never left India. I mean, never left the Netherlands and, and been to India. Proper hardcore Dutch guy. Um, no disrespect, but then when I came up to him after the introduction with all my enthusiasm and I asked him, I said, are we also going to learn to chant some of the Vedic mantras? He gave me this very stern and slightly irritated look and then told me, of course not. It's a dead language. And he broke my heart because I had been to India once for a few months before that. I had witnessed some of the, the, the pujas, the ceremonies, and I was like, it's not dead at all. <laughs> So I took my years there as an opportunity to learn as much as I could. But then I also knew that, yes, if I want to explore this more, I'll have to come to India as well. And to make a long story short, I did come to India. Um, I went to the, the Art of Living International Center in Bangalore because we have a Veda Pachala there also, uh, where boys mm -hmm. train to become pundits. So I had a chance to explore that more. And I wanted to serve. I always had a very keen interest to do something that will also benefit others. It's not just for myself. Uh, I was quite content just being me. So I didn't have a, a vision of getting that Porsche or, you know, like, I mean, my friends had all different uh, aims in life. So I, I thought, let me go for one or two years, explore this. And after one or two years, honestly, I didn't feel like going back to my nine to five job and just being there in Holland when I could spend my whole week serving, contributing, doing something useful. And at the same time, exploring this journey of, uh, the ancient traditions of India, the Vedic tradition. And uh, along the way, I picked up Hindi. I picked up a little bit of some other local languages. I've worked in different parts of India, including six, seven years in the northeastern region, 
So everywhere from Arunachal Pradesh to Nagaland, uh, Manipur, or, uh, Assam, uh, proper jungle areas, uh, Bhutan also. Last two, three years have been mostly in Africa. Um, and as you can hear, my Indian has, uh, accent has really become quite permanent when it comes to English. <laughs> my Dutch is still fine, but my English has become quite Indian. Well, that, that's a natural process, Swamiji. So I just, I was just keen about two, three things that you mentioned over here. So in martial arts, which, which martial arts were you dabbling in? So uh, I started with judo when I was very young, about six or seven. Uh, and I practiced that for quite a few years, um, almost up to black belt. But then uh, in the meanwhile, I, uh, I wanted, because judo is it's very playful. It, it was nice. It was good. Then I wanted to explore a little more. So uh, for about three, four years, I also practiced something called Ninpo Bujutsu. It's like a ninja martial art from Japan, um, including the, the, the throwing stars. And we used to learn to fight with different types of sticks, swords, uh, all kinds of anti-samurai techniques, which at some point got a little bit too violent for me. So, of course, you don't use it like that. But, uh, but it was very interesting. And it had... But mostly appealed to me was the also the aspect of tradition and ritual, you know. So that it's not just the the sport or learning to fight, but there's a whole tradition behind it. You have a, a lineage of masters. You have that respect, that you know, that spiritual aspect. You can say. Um, and then I did Taekwondo for some time, and uh, and Wushu Kung Fu, um, mm-hmm. and in between a few years of Capoeira, just because we like to dance also, uh, and I like the somersaults and the. <laughs> the the other swing of it so that's interesting because i i am a huge martial arts fan i mean obviously i don't practice martial arts but i watch martial arts a lot especially mixed martial arts so i remember mm. when you had uh, to, told me about this uh, so holland has a huge kickboxing uh, culture uh, holland has some amazing uh, dutch uh, the dutch fighters are very good uh, i mean mm. they're they're there is a lineage of great Dutch uh, kickboxers. So, so I, I thought you'd be into kickboxing, but you were into everything else other than kickboxing. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> uh, but Swamiji, so let, let's talk about this now. So you you mentioned how you you were in Indology, and maybe we can segue off of here, yeah, Indology, into something that we were talking offline too. So you, you shared this incidence about you know your teacher telling you, Sanskrit is a dead language. Now, now, so when you were studying about India, Indian culture in Indology departments, and now that you are, I, I don't know, you're an Indian. For me, you're an Indian. You live in India. You're part of us. You're a part of this country's fabric. Now, now that you live here and you've studied it, not only from a textual sense where you read books, you, you, it, but from an experiential sense where you experienced India now for, for more than a decade. So what would you say were the key differences in the India that is inside the Indology departments and the India that you live in and experience on a daily basis? Well, I think, um, and maybe because I had already spent, I had spent a few months in India um, before I started my studies, like I said, so I knew that uh, there is more to it than just this. So even at that time, when I used to read the textbooks, we have to learn about uh, different philosophies, different people, different cultures, different religions. Um, 
different aspects of society. Um, to some extent, there was already the reference point that, okay, this is what I have seen or experienced myself, and this is what is written here. And sometimes it was very interesting because what we would learn would give a context or maybe um, a deeper understanding of why certain things are the way they are or why people do things they do. But quite a few times, I also felt that the those books, and most of it is... Uh, well, I'm not sure if I can say, but let's say, unfortunately, um, written by scholars from the West, where I felt that many times maybe uh, they did not have enough experience uh, or for whatever reason had not had the opportunity or the interest to actually go and see how things work. So there was a bit of a, uh, yeah, sometimes like you miss the boat. And I know there's an ancient, I mean, not ancient, but a, a long uh, an old tradition of Indology uh, from the West, especially if you look at countries like Germany, even Netherlands, uh, the UK. But many times these were people who maybe spent a little bit of time in India at some point, or they used to base their things on what they've read from other, other people's accounts. And I felt that, uh, yeah, in many ways, it doesn't do justice to, yeah, to really to, to what either these traditions teach, what they're about, or even people, you know, it's, uh, it, it may not be um, intentional. It may be a very sincere uh, approach or a, a sincere effort to understand people or to explain things or to classify them. But uh, yeah, I felt it was very limited in its approach. And, uh, and that's what one of the main things that prompted me also to go. And, and even today, you know, wherever I go, I learn so much. And one of the main things I have learned is that uh, many times we really, we cannot judge so easily because there is so much more behind it, behind that person or that tradition or whatever it may be. So, so, so you know, oftentimes there is talk about Orientalism. Uh, I mean, hmm. I'm sure you must have heard of Edward Said. Yes, and yes. Obviously, Said's book was in, the, in, in, in line of uh, how the Islamic world was projected by yeah. uh, what is loosely and oftentimes to my great irritation and annoyance called the West because even the West yeah. is very diverse you know I mean it's like what is the West if you ask someone to define the West they have no answer but it's okay yeah. but so so when we talk about Orientalism and Occidentalism which is somewhat of a theme if if, if were if it were so of this podcast where uh, not only do I want to talk about Orientalism which is very real I also like to talk about Occidentalism because if we want to accuse someone of Orientalism we should not dabble in Occidentalism ourselves so maybe we can talk about this too and then we get into the book how does one balance this Swamiji you have the unique experience of someone who was born and raised in the West loosely you come to the East, loosely. <laughs> now, tell me, how do we solve this Orientalism, Occidentalism conundrum? Well, it may not be so easy. Um, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it were, then uh, uh, that would have probably earned me some extra points. But I think um, more than anything, to really be able to, yeah, to, to talk about well, like, let's say if you want to talk about the West, then the only way to really do justice to that is to really go there and, and in a way, become a part of it. Like, like you said, I had the good fortune of 
coming to India and uh, not just me having that such a keen interest or thirst to learn more about her ancient traditions, uh, even her modern uh, people. And, and of course, for me, it feels like home. But at the same time, it also is because I was welcomed like that. You know, people have, have been so kind to explain things to me, to show me how they do things, uh, to tell me why they do it, allow me to see how they go about doing things. Um, and uh, that in many ways has allowed me, like you said, to, to learn so many things, to understand things, where sometimes even people from India come up to me and they say, oh, can you please explain to me why this is like this or why people do that? Or, uh, and in the same way, people in the West may ask me that, oh, can you tell us more about this or that? Or, um, and the only reason why I feel that to some extent I can do justice to that is because I have really immersed myself in this. So, um, and the same is with the West, like you said, you know, <laughs> it happens so many times that uh, just to give an example that I go somewhere and, and an innocent person will ask me that, uh, uh, are you from America? Because for some reason, I think because <laughs> most people from the West are from America, you know, or from Russia, maybe because we have a lot of Russians also, I know, come to India. Um, just like maybe, you know, uh, people coming from anywhere in India, everybody has such a strong local culture also, you know, whether you're from Gujarat or from Kerala, but then, so to someone, if you say all Indians are the same, some people will, will say definitely not, you know, <laughs> I have nothing like this person who is from that, that corner of the country or, so uh, I think this is one of the, the biggest challenges with this, uh, this approach of saying, okay, we have the Occident, we have the Orient, apart from the fact that it's not even clearly defined, because East and West itself is relative from wherever you are. Um, but it's also that it's, it's so general, no? like in India where they said, okay, everything beyond this river, we call it, uh, we call it India. No? That, that's, okay, all these people, they're called Hindus. No? That from the word Sindhu, that river, and then they call them Hindus. So you heap it all together and then they're doing so many different rituals and things. Okay, let's call it Hinduism. But that doesn't do justice at all because people may be doing the total opposite of each other. And that doesn't mean there's a conflict. So they may be perfectly fine with the fact that we're all called Hindus, but you're not really doing justice to the diversity and, the, and the, the depth of the traditions in this huge subcontinent, which was very happily just given one label and then we're done with it. So even people trying to explain Hinduism or the, the, Ori the Orient, it's very difficult because you have so many things heaped together that it begs to differ whether you can even find a common thread <laughs> sometimes. True. Uh, I agree with you. And which is why oftentimes when discussions like these are happening, I think there is a lot of uh, straw manning of the other and misrepresentation of the other as if the West is all this or the Indian culture is all this. And, and, and this is why it's very important to understand that there are fascinating, good, bad, mediocre aspects in every culture and every society and we need to understand them at their terms but now swamiji let's get into the book so i want to read uh, this particular two instant two particular excerpts from your book one was from page eight on your book in the kindle edition by the way guys <laughs> and one was page nine but you say there are many misconceptions and wrong notions when it comes to meditation nowadays as in the last few decades it has found itself transitioning from what was by many perceived as a strange occult 
practice that was associated with scarcely clad yogis in the Himalayas to the latest trend of mental fitness for the hip and successful with an increasing number of mobile apps that promise you peace of mind in as little as three minute instant meditations. On top of that, many embrace the term mindfulness as the new and much more secular word for meditation, making it easier to market to both the masses and corporate honchos, not realizing that meditation and mindfulness are really not the same and in some ways even exactly opposite to each other. And then you also say, trying to strip it from its context and tradition will not only be an injustice to the very masters who have preserved this knowledge till today, but would also deprive the practice of some of its most effective essential aspects so this is something we even briefly mentioned i could not read the excerpt obviously during our earth chat so maybe i'll expand and if you you know hear me out sure. so a couple of interesting apps uh, one of them i do use uh, it is waking up by sam harris um and i have uh, you know i have done the sudarshan kriya beginner course whatever it was the initial course with the art of living and i have meditated on and off in my own ways whenever I could mm -hmm. in my life. But so so what exactly, Swamiji, would my question to you would be, or Dan Harris also runs, I forgot what, what his app is. There are many such apps, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, Joseph Goldstein is different because Joseph Goldstein is an open Buddhist. He, he does not say he's not a Buddhist. He's a famous mm -hmm. Buddhism practitioner in America for if, if people don't know who he is, in, in case people are wondering. You know, he's very open. He says, this is Buddhism. This is Buddha. Uh, but the, the thing that I've noticed is this whole, you know, Vipassana suddenly became uh, mindfulness and then everybody forgets Vipassana. And then some people even start calling it something. Uh, it's like, now they, there are claims being made about Vipassana itself is not the same as mindfulness. So, so Rajiv Malhotra, if I remember, <laughs> he, he coined this term digestion. So he coined this term. So why do you think it is very important to maybe give it back to the source code, if I was to say, in, this, in these technologies? Well, um, Kushal, I think there are two, three aspects to this. One of them is that when, uh, like I've seen, in, when in the process, uh, these ancient practices or techniques or, or this uh, science, to a great extent, it's a science. When you talk about yoga also, um, when it gets stripped of some of that so-called, you know, cultural or historical uh, or religious uh, or spiritual uh, baggage, then it kind of takes it out of context. So if we look at yoga, for example, nowadays, most people in this world where yoga has become so popular, mostly associate yoga with asanas, which are the physical postures. And that too, not even so much in a meditative way, but more in an exercise kind of way. So it's a wonderful exercise to become more flexible. And then we see that some of the most uh, popular or uh, so-called successful uh, yoga teachers look great on the beach. You know, it's like the, 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 their outfit may be close to a bikini or, uh, you know, it's, it's to some extent also about having a six pack or look really good. And it's wonderful. It may inspire people uh, just like uh, an ad with, a good-looking person may inspire you to buy that deodorant or that watch or whatever they're marketing. But the point is that that's not what yoga is about at all. And even the whole aspect of being flexible and strong and fit uh, is more, you can say, like a preliminary step where they say, yes, if you want to really explore your mind, your consciousness, train your mind, master your mind, uh, 
have that kind of peace of mind, irrespective of whatever situation you may find yourself in, then you need a certain level of fitness. I mean, let's be honest, even for us to have this conversation comfortably, we need to be comfortably sitting. If you have a back pain and a knee pain, you know, your attention will go there. Uh, you won't be able to really enjoy or focus on the conversation. Forget about something like meditation. But in the same way, when we look at meditation, uh, and as you well pointed out, you know, then the transition to mindfulness, uh, because meditation was still, let's put it, that term again, quite uh, strongly associated with the East, the Orient, and and its uh, various religious and occult practices, where mindfulness somehow sounds much more secular. And I recently came across an article where in the UK, uh, a person who started, uh, who did a lot for the mindfulness community there and is actively teaching, uh, very proudly coined that now they even have come up with a secular mindfulness. So for those who still had doubts about mindfulness as a practice, <laughs> being not secular enough to maybe introduce in their corporate or whatever, now we have secular mindfulness. So that's like, the, uh, the best solution. So you don't have to worry about anything. You can do it without having to worry about your, whether you believe in something or who you believe in or what, or whether you don't believe in anything at all. This is safe for everybody. So I found it quite funny because as you well pointed out, mindfulness is uh, at, at least the main concept mainly comes from the Buddhist practices. And that again uh, borrows or has built on or developed from the yogic traditions um, I mean, many times people forget that Buddha was probably by definition a Hindu because he was born as a Hindu, raised as a Hindu. He studied the Hindu scriptures. He may not have preached that, okay, you need to follow this and this and this scripture, but many of his knowledge techniques come directly from there. So if we look at it that way, then uh, mindfulness, if you look at the yogic scriptures, many of its practices are what they used to call as uh, dharana where you bring your attention on one point and you keep it there. And that has many benefits, but then it's not the same as dhyana, which was another aspect of yoga, which now we usually refer to, you can say, as meditation. So even there, there was already a clear distinction. And it doesn't mean they're not connected or they're not uh, mutually um, supportive or they, uh, they aid each other or they are steps to each other. But to say that it's the same would be doing injustice. And... Uh, one other aspect, um, which I think is very important to mention here, is also that if we see both the practices, traditions, um, whether we look at Buddhism, Hinduism, or other Eastern traditions, um, and even traditions that are practiced in the West, um, I don't want to say Western because many people forget that even uh, Christianity and Judaism and all came from the Middle East. It's actually not Western, <laughs> but uh, that may be another controversial point. But many of the things that are practiced in the West or in the East, if we look at practices like mindfulness or meditation, where the goal, one of the goals is to quieten the mind, to uh, manage your mind, to transcend your mind, to maybe experience higher states of consciousness. It's very difficult to even start those practices effectively if your mind is a mess, if your mind is all over the place. And that's where many people also struggle when they start to try and practice mindfulness or meditation. But what people many times don't know or realize is that when you learn these things in a tradition, and I've seen that in my martial arts practice also, where uh, there is a sense of respect and reverence for be it the teacher or the tradition or the knowledge, whatever it may be, that itself is a very important first step or an aid, I would say, 
because that is when your mind is already there. You know? Like if we look at, at what uh, reverence or respect or honor is when you honor something or someone, uh, as my master once beautifully said, he said it is a state of total attentiveness of the mind with a tinge of gratitude. And that is true because if you have a, a, a very well-respected person coming to your house that you really revere or honor or respect, your whole attention will be there. Okay, are they comfortable? Where will they sit? What do they need? If your neighbor who anyway comes in and out of the house all the time, comes in, sits down, half the time you don't even notice. So nowadays, if you see where students, many times people complain, oh, students have attention deficiency. Nowadays it's a big problem. And it's because of so many things, including the iPads and internet and God knows what. But if you ask me, one of the main reasons is actually that earlier people had a lot of reverence. They had a lot of respect for the teacher, for going to school, even for the books. So when you would sit there and you say, oh, yes, I'm going to get some knowledge. This person is going to teach me something. When that respect is there, your mind is already fully there. So then you don't need to focus or put an effort to concentrate. It happens naturally. But now who has respect for teachers? Who is this person to tell me anything? If I want to know something, I'll Google it. So, yeah, then it's very difficult to focus there because who's going to focus? So this aspect, and this is my personal experience also, when you have a practice or a tradition or a master or where that uh, devotion or that reverence, that respect is kindled, it makes it so much easier to really effectively practice. And this is just one of the examples where when you take it out of that context, um, sometimes makes it much more difficult and sometimes it even... Uh, yeah, makes you miss some of the the main benefits uh, of these techniques and practices. Yep. Now I want to read two more excerpts. Uh, pardon me, I made a lot of notes, so uh, that's perfectly <laughs> I'm allowed. Going to be reading. Yeah. So two more things that you've written here. You say you will learn that meditation does not require a lot of focus or concentration; rather, the opposite, and that it can actually be a joyful journey of eye openers it is journey from effort to effortlessness from activity to stillness and from stress anxiety and frustration to a state of peace and tranquility one thing that i would like to emphasize though is that meditation is so much more than just a solution to some of these problems that many of us face now i want to connect it to something way ahead in the book there's a line you say bring it on we have given away we have given away the control over our happiness and now it's time to take it back. Obviously, you're weaning people in the context of the book towards something that you call is happiness. Now, my question is this to you, Swamiji. What is happiness? And then a follow-up to that. What is us? Our I? I mean, that's a fundamental question, right? Obviously, you're, a, you're, you're at a... You're on the podcast of a guy who dabbles in philosophy, so I, I will have to ask you those questions because yeah, yeah, if no, we you don't, have to do, you have to keep up yeah, your reputation. Yeah, if, no? Yes, otherwise people will throw metaphorical stones at me. So yes. how what does it mean, Swamiji, to be happy then, in, according to you? Yeah, so I think that's important to add. I would only feel comfortable answering this where I say this is something that I'm sharing from my based on my experience and, and my understanding. Sure. Uh, I in no way pretend to speak for the whole of humanity uh, and other civilizations that may be there. But um, if we look at uh, happiness, you know, many times we feel that 
we need to somewhere we have maybe been taught also that we need certain things to be happy and it creeps in very subtly because as a small child you see we are happy naturally anywhere in the world a small child it can be playing in the mud with a pebble or uh, chewing on a lollipop or just looking at a bird and it's happy but then somewhere along the way this thing creeps in that oh we need to do something to get that or to become happy and it can be anything okay you finish school get a good job career marry someone become famous whatever it may be you know or become enlightened or um but if we really look at it whenever you feel really good happy many times if you honestly pause and say okay how, why, why am i feeling like this it's very difficult to pinpoint someone may even ask you why are you so happy today you know you may be whistling uh while on your way to the office and someone asks you why you're so happy i i don't know i just i feel i feel very good i feel happy but if you ask someone who is miserable that why are you miserable 99% of the times you'll get a whole story you know because that person did this to me and that didn't happen or god knows what you know there's so many reasons to complain but if we look at it we don't need a reason to be happy you need a reason to be unhappy mm-hmm. and that way if you see then um even when you look at the yogic scriptures they say that yes there is a uh, a part of your consciousness which is blissful whether we want like because i have to little bit you know at least somewhere meet you on your level so let's whether we talk about you know the the nature of consciousness whether it's satchidananda or we talk about the anandamaya kosha or there is a uh, in many ways there is an intrinsic connection between uh, a state of our consciousness that is uh, not superficial so that is more lasting more eternal that is more us to come to your second question also a little bit and and that being happy so happiness is not a an outside or a foreign thing rather it's something that gets covered or veiled or uh, that we are not able to experience and it has also been my experience that um whenever to put it in a very practical way whenever people are able to uh get rid of their their tiredness and their uh the, maybe their the craving aversions their their stress their traumas then inside they they are already happy like we have worked in places like high security prisons i have personally worked uh, in in prisons with militants also in the northeast um you know people who have been living in the jungle uh just living on whatever they can find in the armed conflict or whatever it may be we have worked with people who were affected uh, afflicted by uh, natural calamities whether it's a flood or a tsunami or you know in all kinds of such scenarios where um i have personally witnessed people with a regular practice of some of the breathing techniques we taught them meditation and some insight in how to manage their mind where in a matter of sometimes even just weeks we could see such a drastic transformation and we have people who have been through such terrible things like who were definitely by all uh, parameters uh, traumatized and that resulted in maybe them being very violent or or whatever uh, who are now doing tremendous uh, service to society to other people like they're they're really transformed person but it's because they were able to tap into something that was still there by removing some of those uh yeah strains stresses traumas whatever was there and of course these are extreme cases but it applies to our day to day life as well i'm sure most people have this experience that sometimes uh for whatever reason you had a really good sleep or you were able to just drop everything for a moment and 
you're just sitting at home having having a drink or sitting in the garden or at the beach and suddenly you feel so wonderful and it doesn't need anything special so to me i would say uh if i try to answer that question happiness is uh it's our nature it's a state where you are uh consciously experiencing your state of being that is not uh colored or affected by uh either an internal or external external stress you can say uh and when it comes to us who are we yeah this is a very tricky question because i mean i have studied a little bit of the different darshanas but i am definitely a a fond i'll not say staunch maybe but a very fond uh, um let's say follower of advaita vedanta so there you know when we talk about non duality the word us itself becomes problematic because that already implies yeah. there is more than one because you do talk about it in your book right swami ji you say my yes. thoughts my mind my memories yes. and my feelings i remember that bit from your book because i've highlighted it and I, yes. because i i i was like i am not going to be in a position to ask him many questions which he has mentioned in this book so so what is it like so okay i'll give you the western right descartes said i think therefore i am right descartes yeah. uh, had the famous line which he said now um now from a advaitin point of view am i the one thinking then or who is thinking or what is thinking yeah, yeah there is this one right? one story i i believe i i i don't i think i mentioned it in the book as well i'm not sure but there's this incident where they talk where they say adi shankaracharya one of the great proponents of advaita vedanta was uh, on his travels of teaching people these insights and trying to make them realize that yes this is all like a dream you know it's uh, it's all maya and then uh, a wild ele- an elephant became wild out of control and he came running down the the marketplace and adi shankaracharya started running because a wild elephant is very dangerous you know you get trampled or so then some of the bystanders so goes the story uh, were making little fun of him and they said you know come on you have been teaching us that this is all maya so why are you running that elephant is also maya so then he said a very beautiful thing he said yes that's true but my running is also maya <laughs> so the tricky thing is like one is that vyavaharika sat you know like what is in in our interaction because if we only talk about uh, a, a supreme or higher reality where you say this is all non dual consciousness this is a play and display of that one whatever universal fabric then i couldn't even write a book you know udri khatam <laughs> so if we talk about and because for let's be honest for well at least say most people this is also not our experience so when we experience mm-hmm. we feel in our day to day interactions that yes i feel separate from the person next to me and i feel like the same way i feel more attached or i feel more concerned about my child and maybe not the neighbor's child so that means we have a, a limited purview perspective of of reality there are certain things which we feel are mine and then of course now what is that so that somewhere there is an attachment and then who am who am i of course in the book that's what i try to at least uh, take people by the hand and make them take that first few steps of course you have had the privilege and uh, the inner calling to explore this in a much broader way but for many people even though somewhere we know that i am not just the body because sometimes you say oh my body is hurting or you know well, my body feels very heavy so somewhere knowingly or unknowingly we know that we are separate but very few people have consciously really looked at it the same way that my mind we get so disturbed all kinds of thoughts that we may have 
but we forget it because we can see those thoughts, we can observe the mind. That means in some way we are something that is still separate from it. We are able to, to witness that. So that journey, like you say, even yes, my feelings, but because I can say my feelings, it also means I'm not my feelings or not just those feelings because I'm still something that is able to observe it. And then when you take that further, then you come to a point where you realize, oh, that all those things that I'm so worried about or that are, you can say, all my weaknesses, weak spots, or my, uh, I am something that is separate from that. And when you realize that, oh, yes, there is a part of me that is untouched, that is unaffected by the circumstances, by the experiences I go through, that can be a great uh, source of strength or solace, especially in a time like this, where people have seen that many of those things that they tend to rely on for their sense of security, their sense of peace of mind, have started shaking. You know, I know in Europe, um, of course, the pandemic, just like many other places, was terrible. But just when people thought, okay, oh, this is this is kind of sorted. Now we have a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and and for many people, again, it's like, oh God, you know, like everything is suddenly very uncertain. What if? So to still maintain that peace of mind, you can say, to still be able to move on with your life without feeling life is a struggle and to still be able to appreciate the beauty that, that is there around us, we need to have a certain sense of stability, centeredness, and uh, that can only come when we turn inward, look inward, and also consciously start at least getting a glimpse or experiencing that, oh yes, but despite all this, there is a part of me that is unaffected, that is a silent witness. You know, another another beautiful story and we did uh, I, I just the story that you share in the book is the story of the Buddha where mm. you, know, you talk about the gentleman, the businessman who who sees a lot of times his, his the, the people who work for him keep going for the sermons of the Buddha and he gets very angry and I if I remember, he says some uncharitable words to the Buddha and he goes away. And then in the night, he he regrets what he did. And he comes back the next day uh, and he says, you know, I, I'm very sorry. I, would, I beg your forgiveness. And the Buddha says, I cannot forgive you. And then he says, my Lord, I think you don't recognize me. The gentleman replied, I am the one who came here yesterday and spat on your face. To which the Buddha replied, no, you're not, the Buddha replied. You're not the same man that you were yesterday. Nor am I the same person as the one who that was spat on yesterday. And as both of us are different people, how then can I forgive you? Who is there to forgive and who is to be forgiven and for what? Now, this is such a profound thought that the Buddha had. Swamiji, in today's age of social media, <laughs> we have to talk about it again. Where somebody will dig up my tweets from 2009 or 2010 or 2011. Oh, look at you, Kushal Mehra. You did this. How do we convince people, Swamiji, about the message of the Buddha, especially when it comes to tweet mining <laughs> or post mining on social media? You know, I think, um, I mean, how to convince people, of course, that is something that... Uh... I keep asking myself every day because, I mean, let's be honest, I have dedicated my life to 
to sharing at least whatever little I have learned uh, and what I feel has benefited me. Um, but I think it's very important uh, for people, even for you, because when they dig up your tweet, okay, then how do you move forward? But if we look at, uh, and this is, it's a little, again, a little advanced, but in any way uh, you are, and this podcast is a more in-depth conversation. So I think with your audience, we can. If you look at also some of the yogic scriptures or the scriptures of Vedanta, there is a clue there where they say that the, the vrittis or the activities of the mind, the thoughts, uh, basically all get, uh, like they come up when the memory gets stirred. And it gives us a clue that when you give more importance to an event or a situation or to a happening, the impression becomes much stronger. And of course, to some extent, we know this because there are many activities we do every day that we feel are not important at all. And therefore, we don't even remember. Like if I ask you what you had for lunch two weeks ago, unless it was something extraordinary, most people will not remember. You know? Or if I say, okay, how, how was it brushing your teeth yesterday? Or sometimes even you yourself don't remember, oh, did I do this thing or not? Or, because it's not at all important. And certain things, we give a lot of importance and it becomes a very strong impression where it can really disturb us. It can bother us. We don't enjoy that, but someone may have said something to you or even looked at you in the wrong way. And it can pinch you that whenever later on you meet that person or even someone mentions their name, uh, something inside gets very tight or you feel very uneasy or you don't feel comfortable going to your office or going and meeting these people. And then you can say, no, but that's a very different thing because these are people or people you know. But sometimes if we look at our dreams, for example, you have a dream where maybe a family member or a colleague treats you very badly. And you wake up maybe even feeling anxious or angry, or you may wake up crying. You know, people sometimes physically, they're crying when you wake up. You're going through that experience. But then when you realize, oh, it was just a dream, in a matter of seconds, that settles down, that emotion disappears. And later in the day, you don't even remember. So you may meet that same person, but you don't hold it against them. That why did you do this to me in my dream? Or it's not that when you hear their name, you, you feel all tight inside or you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because it was just a dream. If at all you remember, most of the times we don't, but if at all you remember something that I had a dream like this, you may even tell them with a smile, hey, Pataya, you know, I had such a funny dream, you know what you did to me. So that feeling is not there. But in real life, we get really disturbed. And then you can say, oh, maybe, you know, just in the book, I've also, I've briefly mentioned this. Like you can say maybe because that was a dream, but even in real life on the street, if a random person calls you an idiot, you know, you're going down the street and someone shouts at you, hey, idiot, or whatever, you're, you're useless. Or We don't usually take it very personally. You think, oh, maybe that person mistook me for someone else, or maybe he's drunk, you know, PKI yoga. But someone in your house, even if they look at you in the wrong way, it can really hurt us. So once you realize that it is not so much the events that really torment us or disturb us, but it is the importance that we give to it because then that thought keeps coming back like the buddha said if if you're able to really drop whatever has happened yesterday just like it was a dream say just pretend that yesterday was a dream then any of those events they will not touch you you know and this this is of course it takes a little practice um, because it has to come again from an experiential level but yeah this is something one of these very beautiful things that these ancient traditions can teach us that our 
experience and perception of reality is because of our conditioning. And to some extent, we can recondition ourselves or uncondition ourselves. Mm. Swamiji, so cancel culture is a dharmic, right? Then, well, even the word dharma is <laughs> could be another whole discussion, or what is adharma? But uh, see, the thing is, if you ask me, cancel culture to some extent, you can say yes, it's 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 a, it's a, it's flaunting your ignorance to some extent, or your your unacceptance, or at the same time, you know, I think. Uh, Again, if we don't take it to that extreme, it's also a kind of, you can say, maybe uh, a social, um, what is the right word? It's like uh, policing is not the right word, but it's like a social, um, what is the word I'm looking for? It's like it kind of, it, it's one more way maybe to also a little bit keep in check uh, what people say or do in a medium where there is no not much of other control or censoring, you know. So censoring, of course, mm -hmm. usually is, is used in a negative context. But if we look at the, the challenge with social media is that uh, apart from maybe some of the standard policy guidelines and whatever bots and scripts can pick up. So, so I guess what you're people, trying to say is if done in a balance, it can be a good checkpoint. But if done over more than required it becomes like walking on eggshells yeah i think like like with anything you know there is a that there, there is a anything can be good in in a certain measure so just like a, mm -hmm. a little bit of poison can cure you you know like most of the life-saving drugs have poison written on it but it has to be at the right time the right amount in the same way a little bit of salt in the food can make it tasty too much is a problem because let's be honest you know social media have given anybody a way to talk to the world unlike it was ever before you know earlier if if you could get it in a newspaper then those who would read it would read it or if you would write or print a book some people may read it but now that one tweet of yours if it somehow gets picked up and goes viral in the cloud let's face it has the capacity to to uh to build and destroy anything nowadays almost so, so, so uh, I guess your I think, answer is as dharmic as it gets. You're saying cancel culture is also contextual. So it can be dharmic at times where you're canceling someone who is clearly a dharmic. But at a fundamental level, yes, we should try and avoid using this tool. And we should be very careful when we are using cancel culture, right? Yeah. It's a, Great. I know Great. it's usually the, the term is used in, in, in the negative way. But, but yeah, if we look mm -hmm. at it from a broader perspective, yes. So, Swamiji, there is another story. You did talk about it, about the king and the saint. But uh, maybe I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about another thing that I had written you an email about. Again, mm. this is about... Uh, why I'm asking this is because uh, I was looking at the analytics of my podcast and at least a good 50 to 55% of my listenership or viewership, whatever we want to call it, because some listen to the audio version, um, are young kids, young kids from the age of 18 to the age of, let's say, 25. A, a mm. good 50% of them are really young people who are listening to this. Or, um, Very nice. Or they're lying about their That's age on social media. <laughs> 
Ah, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. also possible. <laughs> yeah. So, but the analytics say that a lot of young people are tuning in now. Young people, and I'm not saying I was unique. Even I was the same. But um, we get bored very fast. Now, hmm. if you remember, I had written you an email, and in that email, I had told you the joke by George Carlin, where George Carlin had cracked a joke about. what happened to sitting in a park and just you know going around doing nothing right and just doing nothing was good enough but nowadays again social media comes in again we are fed with so much information through this gadget and it's a constant process it's a constant struggle right now how do we deal i don't know what what are the word i can use from now you could correct me and say kushal it's not boredom it's the natural and the eventual state right that could be mm. the state where you don't get bored at all but how do we deal with boredom i still have to ask you this question well no i think it's a very valid question kushal and um the way i see it like now that we have a little bit broader platform to explore this um see i would say that in many ways boredom is a sign of intelligence and uh, also evolution because in many ways if we see like if we take example of a cow for example a cow may be will be so happy being on the same patch of grass every day chewing the grass it's the same grass every day and then a cow has multiple stomachs so again that same grass has to be <laughs> chewed again and again and and that cow is just all there going like chewing again and again this and it's not getting bored it's perfectly fine there it doesn't it doesn't run away it doesn't say now today i'm not going to have the grass or um in the same way we see some people who uh who may be very content doing the same thing every day they get up in the morning they have their cup of tea uh they go whatever to office or or to the farm or whatever they do and they do that all day and they come back and uh you know they have a maybe another cup of tea <laughs> read a newspaper or watch a little bit of tv they go to sleep and the next day they wake up and they're they're okay you know they're content with that uh, i'm not saying they're ecstatic or euphoric but they're happy they don't feel bored and then we see that especially with the the newer generations now if uh, you know what used to be a blessing that you say i'm i'm working for a good company i'll be working there for the rest 50 years retire i'll be set that was a wonderful thing a certain number of years ago now if you ask i think almost any youngster any person who is studying or has just graduated that would you like to work for the same company for 50 years they will run away they say no of course not no and in the same way people who may have been happy just living in their city now people say no i forget about city country i want to see other countries and to some extent it it may be because we have had that exposure you know now let's be honest people grow up with internet tv uh, and all these social media so at an age of say 16 those people have already experienced so much of the world be it uh, because it's also emotional it's not just information when you see a war in another country happening or when you see a, a beautiful inspiring story or whatever it may be or you interact with people it's it's also emotional so in a way there is a lot uh, a lot more maturity at an earlier age um 
which of course sometimes when it's not filtered to some extent it can be a disaster also if people are overexposed to the wrong things we've seen it has terrible effects but it does show that there is a kind of um, maturity that has already kicked in or a kind of maybe uh, experience, uh, saturation of experience. So we see that people at a very young age already start asking very, you can say, spiritual questions or very questions that people used to ponder about in their old age, where we used to, okay, when you're mm -hmm. old, then you start thinking, okay, what is the purpose of life? What have I achieved? Now people are already saying, okay, I have seen this, done that. Even if I've not physically gone to all these places, I have seen it. I have in some way experienced it. Now what? And social media has added a different level to it altogether because it's also social. You know? So first TV, then internet. You're consuming it, but it's still one way. Now you're engaging, you're interacting. So people feel that, okay, yes, I've seen, done so many things. You get a peek into so many people's lives. Uh, you may even get a bit of a feel what it's like to be whatever, a supermodel or a taxi driver or a mom with two kids. So then you say, yes, okay, but, but there must be something more. And in that way, I would say it's, it's not at all a bad thing to get bored. It's, it's a sign of evolution. But here the tricky thing is, if people don't find the right guidance or the right platform to go from there, then it's a problem. Because we see so many kids, why they love experimenting with drugs or things like that is because they got bored. They're looking for something more. They're looking for an authentic experience, but they don't know where to find it. Yeah, then if you do drugs, you get some experience of maybe an altered state of consciousness or you feel for a moment that there is something more. It's not just this usual stuff. So, But that's not a solution. And, and that's not... Uh, it's not a, a, you can say, a positive road because it's not constructive in any way. But in many ways, like what we talk about people being a Gen Z or whatever, being more aware or more spiritual or more, uh, you know, having a different outlook on life. I think it's, it's a good thing. It's a sign of evolution where we start thinking that, uh, realizing that there, there must be something more. And we may not have all the answers yet, but the very fact that people are looking for it and searching uh, is in one way a sign of maturity, I think. Hmm. Not sure if that makes All sense. All right, Swamiji. Yep. Um, now, let me start taking a few live viewers questions too. So, the first question is here to you is, have you explored Western philosophical systems like Stoicism or Neoplatonism? And the next question is, where did you learn ninjutsu from the, I guess it's IGA or Iga school or Koka school? Oh, wow. I, I mean, the person who has asked this question definitely knows at least some other stuff. So, or, or they've been just very fast in Googling. But uh, no, but this is very nice. So when it comes to the Western philosophy, uh, to some extent, yes. Uh, because in, uh, in school, uh, in high school, I was one of the, well, not nerds in the sense that I didn't have a social life or I didn't do breakdancing. But in the sense, we had a group of people who uh, were quite intelligent. So we also had the, the chance, opportunity to learn Latin and Greek. And I opted for that. So that was like an additional subject in school. And uh, along with that, we also learned more about these, uh, you can say the Western uh, philosophy. So we explored it more. Um, and that is what also gave me the, I would say, 
the chance to yeah like explore it and then say that okay yes but i would this is not something i would like to pursue even more in university because i felt i found uh, the eastern philosophy even more interesting but but it's not that it wasn't interesting i loved it and we had such wonderful discussions i had a wonderful teacher who was very passionate about his subject you know it's that that always makes a huge difference so he was really keen to have this kind of discussions with us and he'll you know uh challenge us that okay you come and then think and we'll come up with some idea or some good questions and then he'll again uh turn it around on us it was a wonderful experience as for the ninpo bojutsu it was the iga school all right but, but but if i was to say was there any particular western philosopher that you did like more than say others like I, i'll give you my answer obviously this is the charvak podcast epicurious it is <laughs> <laughs> yes no you got to own it kushal i'm totally for it so um i i i don't i don't feel i have uh like we've studied the you can say the the basic thought system of different philosophers but um if there's one thing i have learned over the years is that uh just by having a taste of something doesn't mean you fully may may be able to really understand or appreciate or uh, or gauge it so even though i went by my uh, feeling and and impulse and uh, maybe roots that i say yes i was more keen to explore the the indian or the eastern traditions um i don't feel i have studied the western philosophers sufficiently to be able to label them like that because even i can say something purely on on whatever little i read and i say okay i like this guy but then it wouldn't really do justice to all their work and thought uh, if i may uh, so highly so i highly, I highly recommend you read parmenides i highly recommend you read parmenides uh, and you will find amazing similarities between the ideas of parmenides and advaita vedanta you will find so many amazing parallels between the two it's it's fascinating oh, i mean I, i came across one of one of the most amazing books i've read in my life was the shape of ancient thought by thomas machiavelli uh it's a very hmm. big book i don't know why people write such big books it's like 1000 pages <laughs> but it talks about the connection between the east and the west and how the east digested certain things from the west and the west digested certain things from the hmm. east and goes back and traces a, a lot of things it's very interesting but in philosophy also uh, they were there but i'll ask the next question but this is more of a comment so i guess you'll have to take this up swami ji somebody has said why is an advaitin on the charvak podcast <laughs> well i think honestly this is the greatness and the beauty of the ancient indian traditions and legacy because let's be honest the very fact that the charvaka was a darshana you know it was it was a valid system of philosophy and an approach to life so even though you can say yes you have the the shadarshana which are uh, you know which are uh, recognizing the the vedas or they are based on some of the tenets that may be found in the vedas but there were other darshanas also and uh, even though yes there were uh, from what we know there were definitely uh, dialogues and discourses and and debates uh, sometimes would even get a little violent maybe uh, in the end um between different schools of thought but from whatever i have studied and seen it was never that a school of thought as such was considered less it was considered different and then maybe you say yes i want to show how my logic or my approach may be superior 
But, uh, and that is something I told Kushal already, uh, can share with the listeners or the viewers also when we met uh, initially, when he told me also about the podcast, that I said, it's such a wonderful initiative to have a podcast with this name and this intake, because there are very few proponents of the Charvaka thought, uh, thought um, school of thought and, and the, the, whatever tradition was there. Uh, even in ancient days, there were not really many, at least that we know of, of course, no, they may have been there, but may have just not been documented because they were not as popular or, or uh, had enough following on, on their media. But um, it's, it was a valid system of thought. And I think it's, it's essential that it's there because let's be honest, this is one way to look at life. And there are definitely uh, many arguments that you can say uh, that do justice to that, that yeah, this is definitely a way you can look at life. And I, from what I feel is that the beauty has always been uh, in overall in the Indian traditions that uh, they were always open to discussion. Even if you look at the Upanishads, it's about someone asking a question and then the teacher will answer and then we can discuss. Or we say, let us explore. You know, even if we look at the Shanti mantras, it's all about let us do this together. Let us explore together. It's not me sitting here telling you what you th need to think. And if you don't agree with it, you can get lost or you're wrong. No, it's about, okay, let us explore. Let us welcome wisdom from all directions. Let us, uh, you know, find out what, what else can be known. And also knowing that there is only so much we know. So... I think it's wonderful. It, it shows that uh, Kushal is not uh, a fanatic and he is happily uh, inviting all kinds of people, all kinds of uh, thoughts and traditions and, and opinions to his podcast. The same way I don't have any issue with, with uh, a Charvaka podcast uh, because it's wonderful, you know. And honestly, that is what I feel. It's the, the, the skill or the art to appreciate the diversity in this world is one of the main prerequisites if you want to be truly happy and peaceful because diversity is going to be there. So all those people who have an issue with the diversity are the ones who are really suffering. Uh, let's be mm -hmm. honest. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And, and it's very interesting. A lot, lot of times, you know, I have these discussions behind a paywall where, you know, we discuss, uh, right now we're discussing the Ramayana. And, and I often tell people, you know, whosoever is a member will vouch for this. I often tell people that I've had a deep impact on me, even though I am... Anastika uh, by Astika and other Nastika philosophies too. I mean, for me, Shri Krishna's Nishkam Karma or many concepts that are, you know, taught in the Ramayana or in the Mahabharata or in the Upanishads uh, at, at the level of philosophy. I, I may not look at the divine aspect of it, but definitely I have learned a lot from them. And I, and I actually personally, I find it very funny when people as if I'm supposed to be opposing, you know, it's 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 yeah. it's free world, and you can learn from everyone. Which is, I don't know. I just uh, sometimes I find it uh, funny because one of my personal core philosophical grounding principles is nishkam karma. But oh, it is what it is. So okay, Swamiji, this question is interesting. What is the most accurate definition and the most accurate example of mithya? This is like a satsang now. Oh, yeah, this is like now we're going hardcore. Well, yeah. See, again, this you don't have tricky. to give the most accurate, but I guess you can share an example. Yeah, because like even for me to to just say, OK, yes, I'm going to give it to you would put my me on such a pedestal where I honestly feel I don't uh, 
deserve to be in the sense that, uh, you know, we have the greatest saints and scholars have spoken about this. But the interesting thing is that, uh, of course, again, even this word mitya, the term, it, it can be explained by different people. Uh, different philosophers have their own approaches. But in general, for those who are listening, um, we can say that uh, when we look at like how Adi Shankaracharya uh, explained it, he said, um, Brahma Satya Jagan Mitya. So this, the, you can say the, the supreme truth or the supreme reality is that it is all one consciousness, one Brahman. And Brahman again can be defined, but let's say consciousness, one universal consciousness. Uh, and then Jagat, like the world that we the, the created, the creation that we perceive is Mitya. And Mitya here means that not that uh, it doesn't exist at all. It's not that there is nothing, but it's perceived to be in a certain way, even though it may not be that. So one example they sometimes give is that uh, in the night, someone goes out of the house, there is very little light and the person stops because on the road there is a snake. And the person is very worried, oh, what if the snake is going to bite me? And then someone else comes with a bigger torch and then they suddenly see it's not a snake, it's a rope. So the moment you see it's a rope, then all the fear is gone. The person can happily go about their, their way. But to say that the snake is not there is correct. Yeah, the snake wasn't there. But you can also not say that there was nothing because a rope was there. It's just that the rope was perceived as a snake. So, in this, so that is mitya, where something is perceived as something else. Just like uh, one other example that sometimes is given is that for us, we can have a golden ring or a necklace or a bangle or a, a watch or whatever it may be. But for a goldsmith, from one angle, it is all the same. It's all gold. So he doesn't see a difference. In the same way, they say, even though we perceive this whole creation and uh, whatever we see, experience as, as separate, that I, I am separate from Kushal, I'm separate from the chair I may be sitting on and so many other things. They say, but from another angle, if you see, this is all one and the same. And now, of course, we have quantum physics, where if you go deep enough, they also say that, yes, even beyond the particles, we see that it is a wave function. It is energy that is vibrating. And if you go deep enough, it is one energy. So that one energy vibrates at different frequencies, different ways. And that's why we perceive it to be different. And for those who are really curious, I can add one interesting thing you can Google. And that was the... Um, oh, now I have to find the right term. It is a double. Uh, do you know what Kushal? That double thing experiment. The double. Uh, double slit experiment. Yeah, double slit experiment. Exactly. It's fascinating. I'm not going to talk anything else about it. But if someone is feeling really adventurous, you can Google the double slit experiment. There are cute little YouTube videos that will explain it to you. But basically, they show there that even particles, like something like an electron, uh, knows when we are watching or not <laughs> which is interesting yeah that, that, that was an interesting experiment but then again the problem with consciousness if you ask me swamiji is that how little we know about consciousness so so the thing is that <laughs> if, if you um, that's why i said no a lot of times comment yeah, so the problem with consciousness is literally like is very interesting. Now I'm I'm going to start reading this new book by David Chalmers where he talks about simulation 
theory and nick mm-hmm. bostrom's theory basically is, is, is so we live in a simulation and how we can basically build up on the case where there is a simulation i always wonder you know how would advaita vedanta fit with simulation theory because i think it 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 would perfectly fit into it because they could say yes inside the brahman there is a simulation that is running in some way it's very interesting but i can only comment after i read the book maybe yeah. you know advaitin should read it advaitin should read about simulation theory too maybe they can uh, they can uh, blend the yeah, two even one, one the more question swami move is like the matrix and uh, and and such you know it's very interesting then the other one what was that other one you must have seen that one um like a dream within a dream inception 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 yes inception yes also yep. yeah, yeah. i i remember that okay so this question is asked by i'm pretty sure must be a young person <laughs> what is swami ji's <laughs> opinion on using psychedelics as means to understand some concepts like say maya i'm personally not a, a great fan or advocate of psychedelics because it doesn't give you a sustainable and uh, fully authentic experience i mean that much like i i won't go too much into the details but if you're like it's it's forcibly induced right so uh, even though it's an altered state of consciousness but it doesn't have a proper foundation and that is why also sometimes where people lose grip a little bit of reality or uh, because it's uh, yeah it's like it, like you force it so the beauty is that through meditation through yogic practices we can experience uh, higher states of consciousness altered states of consciousness but it has a foundation so then what happens um, y- you can place it in the right context and it becomes an authentic experience rather than something that is still colored by so many concepts and because i know people who who did uh, had experimented with drugs and someone ended up in a bad trip and because they had no not much of experience of meditation or managing their own mind their own fears thoughts they were lost you know so we have and that's the same way you have beautiful examples of accomplished yogis and saints and masters who uh demonstrated like they actually did experiments where they shown that uh, some of these substances actually do not affect them in the same way at all because once you have a certain level of understanding and i would say control or mastery over your mind then the impact of these substances also is not the same so i would say it's um yeah it's a little bit like rushing into the pool without learning to swim properly you'll get an experience of what it's like to be wet but yeah you may drown also so 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 what do you what do you think about microdosing that there, there's a lot about the microdosing these days too swami ji yeah i mean see you can try and bring anything into the uh, would you say in the acceptable range but like i said uh, it's not that i'm fully against you know because again there are so many things even when it comes to psychedelics there are all kinds of you can go from natural to fully chemical to uh, but yeah, like i said there's dmt there are there are you know magic mushrooms and many other things right? yeah yeah no some of my friends in school used to make their own space cake and <laughs> with the magic mushrooms and but well, uh, i, I well, never well but... you are uh, you are from a country that's kind of known for these things <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean we have a real liberal policy i never tried it myself but then i did have this experience where over the time over time when i started practicing more of meditation and breathing techniques sometimes my friends used to ask me for an exam that like how come you're so chilled out what did you smoke and they would get annoyed because i said when we get a good joint we always offer you and now it's like you you smoked something without us and i had to try to explain to them that no man it's just the breathing techniques but it took some time for them to accept that <laughs> 
But um, so for microdosing all these things, uh, see, like I said, then you have an alternative which is much more, uh, as per my experience also, much more, um, yeah, it'll give you a much more solid experience and where you can actually build on it. Then what is the need to go for something else? So I'm not saying that everything Fair is enough. bad, but if, yeah, if I have a better alternative, then why not do that? Yes. This is very interesting because Sam Harris, at a personal level, who has gone and dabbled with both, right? He 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 has gone the psychedelics route, and now he's obviously an active meditator. And I don't think Sam does uh, um, any psychedelics anymore, from what I've understood. But uh, please don't quote me on that. It's very mm. interesting, and he also explained how. I guess um, it is a shortcut way. I guess that's what it would be uh, of doing things. I, I personally uh, have not uh, dabbled with psychedelics. I I don't think I would, but my reasons are very different. I just like to stay in control of myself. <laughs> there yeah. I said it. Yeah, no, like in one way, it's a shortcut because you circumvent certain natural, you can say, barriers or limitations. But then, like I said, because it's not an integrated experience, uh, it can be problematic or harmful also. Plus, you don't have a proper understanding. So you don't really know what's happening. So it's not going to give you any lasting benefit. So you may get a glimpse of what it's like to feel more than just being the body. But then after that, you go back to being you and it's not going to add anything. So, yeah. Yeah. So Michael Pollan, who wrote this book recently on psychedelics, he went around. Obviously, it was under guided practitioners. And he did mm -hmm. say he had one bad trip. Uh, uh, about uh, in his entire experience, but obviously he recommends and 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 there's new research now coming out of John Hops Johns Hopkins uh, about how psychedelics tend to have uh, great benefits for some uh, you know de addiction and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But obviously these are all early day researches and they I don't know. I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, my mind is open. I uh, I mean uh, to the these experiences at a personal yeah. level. But uh, while my mind is open, I'm not going to try it myself. Is also something yeah. I'm very clear about. So some people may have that. You know, like if someone is really just so stuck in in you can say their daily routine and their worldly stuff. Like I said, who doesn't really wonder yet? Like, oh, there may be something more, or what am I doing, or am I? Yeah, then maybe you can say someone having a trip suddenly thinks, oh, there may be much more to life. But uh, beyond that, I would say, yeah. I'm like you. I prefer to be in control. And uh, yeah, it's like if you build something up, you have a proper foundation, then you can go much higher also. So if you really want to get high, you need a good foundation. So Swamiji, this question I purposely kept for the last because I this podcast was all about, you know, philosophical concepts. But this is more about you. So how has your experience been in India now that you have gone gone into this transition from you know a country to b country and coming into uh le let me put it even more uh succinctly and in a more detailed manner at the same time um you come here you are obviously a practicing hindu uh, there are no doubts about that <laughs> you're as hindu as it gets uh <laughs> but but has has your so-called ethnicity uh, been a burden or an asset or been both? Um, I mean, for me personally, honestly, uh, not so much in the sense, um, see, on one hand, if you, I think we can say that, uh, like I've seen when I travel also, 
the very fact that I come from, let's use that terrible term again, the West, <laughs> the fact that I come from Europe. And then when people see how wholeheartedly I have embraced the Indian traditions, uh, the you can say the, you know, the the Hindu approach to life or the, the Vedic uh, approach to life. Um, and that to dedicating my life to it, you know, saying that, yes, no, because as a Swami, as a monk, it's, it's a lifelong commitment. It's not something you do for a weekend or a year. So that, of course, uh, makes it sometimes for people even more interesting to curious where people say, oh, you know, I thought this is all not so relevant anymore, or I'm not so fascinated by this, or I don't know what's the point. But then someone coming from the West, which many times, let's be honest, people see as, okay, this place is much more developed. Like people ask me, why did you leave Holland? It's such a beautiful country. It's so amazing. I've been there once, or I've been wanting to go there. Why would you leave all that behind and do this? You know, it's like, what went wrong? So that, uh, in many ways, I think definitely creates a little extra curiosity in people where people may be keen to hear what I have to say. Uh, they may be uh, more keen to ask me questions. Um, so, I mean, if we want to put it in, in the words you use, like that has been a, a benefit maybe or something that has helped me because of course we, we go somewhere. My main aim is to help people. You know, my master sends me somewhere. It is because we want to help people improve their life or help them in some other way, whether it is through, uh, you know, a vocational training or a leadership training or uh, by initiating a service project. But then first is you need people to listen to you or to agree or to come and meet you or to be okay with you doing something there. So there it helps if people are more curious, if people are more interested, or uh, sometimes they even have a lot of respect. They say, oh, you have left so much behind. Um, so that has helped. But at the same time, I would say uh, sometimes also there may be another side to it. You know, like uh, where, um, you know, uh, people may say, oh, you know, maybe uh, he is like a, a missionary who is uh, trying to look like a, like a Hindu, but actually he has a hidden agenda because there have been such cases. Which is very you have no idea how many people have said you look like Jesus since I have put the photo up. <laughs> so that may have been, people forget that Jesus must have been from Israel, right? So he would have been very different than the, the PR image that, that has been floated in, in Europe. But uh, no, but so, so the thing is, so this can be a challenge, you know, where people, there may be some mistrust or, um, you know, in some places, uh, and which is, again, it's not unfounded, where some places people may be reluctant, like there are certain temples. I was in Nepal, uh, we have the, you know, the Pashupatina temple. So then uh, I met one of the, the ministers there, actually, of the, the, the government that time. I was on a tour and um, I happened to ask him because someone said he's also like the trustee for this whole temple complex. So I said, you know, can you take me there? I would love to see the temple. But then he said, you know, actually, uh, it will be difficult because there are some people here who uh, they don't want any foreigners to go inside because from ancient times, usually the foreigners that would come there would be people from the West who may not be familiar with the local customs. You know, so knowingly or unknowingly they may disrespect the the temple or you know they may be wearing some leather items or they may be doing something which is you know that will hurt the sentiments of the people there um, but then of course in a time nowadays where everything got mixed and uh, like you said uh, you know the, me being a swami being a, a part of this tradition um, on one hand you would say would be enough to to qualify as a as a hindu there but 
then because of that, he said, you know, it may create some problems. So then I also said, see, I don't want anybody to feel, uh, you know, unpleasant or I don't want to create any issue. So I said, no problem. Anyway, for me, divinity is everywhere. So uh, I don't need to pray in just one place to feel that, uh, to feel that connection. But uh, yeah, so I think that way, like anything, uh, everything has its pros and cons. But uh, I think overall, if I would have to say, um, I've just been humbled by the extent to which uh, literally people have welcomed me into their home. You know? And still today, you, know, you go to a, a remote village, and this is really something which uh, I feel is, is very, it's one of the greatest uh, things of, of India and this whole subcontinent, these ancient traditions where you come there and someone may just have one glass of milk, but they will offer you half without thinking, if not the whole glass. You know? So, and it's not just me, anybody, but like I have this personal experience where people even looking at me, I may not speak their language. Uh, I may not be fully familiar with their local customs, but that sense of belongingness is something that uh, that is beyond all these, you can say, outer uh, appearances and i think that is one of the, the greatest things i've seen here that people also have that ability you know, they they don't see you just as east or west but yeah you're a human being you're a person or even more an honored guest um yeah but yeah sometimes i, I, I can I can tell you one 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 funny thing is that once i remember in in tamil nadu uh me and one friend of mine who had come from Europe, he also studied Indology. So he, we were uh, there together. And uh, that was after I'd already moved to India. So because of my, uh, my Indian heritage, I have an OCI card. Um, but then we went to a local uh, archaeological site, like a place, you know, like a monument. Uh, so um, we had to buy a ticket you know, because government is managing that. And they had two rates. You know? One is for the international visitors, and one is for the, the local, for Indian people. So with all my, uh, because I spoke Hindi and I had that card and everything, so I got the local ticket for 10 rupees, and my friend had to pay 500 rupees, and he was really pissed. <laughs> he said, you know, this is not fair. Why do I have to pay five when you're paying 10 rupees? I said, at least feel happy that I got the 10 rupee ticket. You know, I mean, we have some money left. We can buy something nice to eat. But... <laughs> Yeah, so so that way, yes, of course, everything has its benefits. <laughs> All I can say, Swamiji, is that uh, I've met many Indians and many Hindus in my life, and you're far more Indian and far more Hindu than most I've come across. Uh, you know, it is uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and, you know, I think this line in your book or these lines in your book, I think th I got you then. So you've said, many times I'm asked this question, how come you are so comfortable, so peaceful, just living out of a suitcase? Moving from place to place every few days, don't, don't you want a place for yourself? Don't you need some savings? What will you do when you get old? What, will, uh, what if you will not be comfortable? Don't you sometimes want to take time off, go for a holiday or go somewhere else? It must be very difficult. Now, how do I explain to people that it is actually the opposite? How do I explain that the lesser you need, the happier and more comfortable you are? The, this ability to, to be comfortable anywhere, to live consciously but without worry and to be happy with very little, truly happy, is available to all of us. You have no idea how beautiful life can be. Now, I can say, Swamiji, as a charvak, 
I cannot understand it because I'm a core materialist. <laughs> but I hear you, and 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 I want to take this opportunity uh, through this medium and on behalf of each and every listener and viewer of my podcast and say thank you very much for coming. And it was an absolute honor and pleasure talking to you. Well, then, Kushal, allow me to reciprocate that. Uh, it was a wonderful um, conversation, and uh, I, like I said, I truly appreciate the whole initiative of this podcast. But I also appreciate you. Uh, like you said, the, the very, uh, yeah, this, this interest to explore, to keep an open mind uh, is something that uh, I think is something very precious. And I, uh, I truly loved being here. I hope I've done justice to your great learning of philosophy <laughs> with my uh, simple answers. But uh, it was truly a pleasure. And uh, I wish you all the very best for this podcast. Thank you very much, Swamiji. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap it up, I would like to tell all of you that please go and read Swamiji's book. It's not a very big book. It's it's a very short, compact, crisp read. Uh, in the description of this podcast, when you go either on YouTube or on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you're going to be, or SoundCloud, you will see a link to buy Swamiji's book. Please go and buy the book. I think it's a wonderful book with... Uh, you know, short stories, great aphorisms where you, you will find a lot of answers to many questions that you guys are searching for. And uh, Swamiji does it with a smile on his face. As you can see him right now, you know, that that face, you, you keep it in mind when you're reading that book. And that's <laughs> how he is because I've spoken to him offline too. You know, he has that uh, has a thing. As far as I'm concerned, please subscribe to the Charvak podcast. Look, you know, everybody knows when I started this podcast, I could have easily chased the clickbait route, but I did not. I try to have meaningful conversations. I was really so happy when I met Swamiji at Delhi at the Earth Festival. I immediately told him as soon as we got off, I said, you have to come on my podcast. I want to talk about these concepts in detail, not just once, many times in the future too. And I want to make sure that, you know, at least in India, in some sort of, uh, of a YouTube zone, there are these kinds of conversations happening between people from different darshanas. Now, obviously, Swamiji and I, Swamiji is an Advaitin, I'm a Charvak. We will have disagreements on many things, even on which Pramanas are valid. I am <laughs> one and a half Pramana guy, Swamiji is six Pramanas guy. So we are we we have many disagreements, but what we have in common is mutual respect, reciprocity, and you know, Krishna's ahimsa, as I always say, or Mahavira's ahimsa for some people. But I'll wrap today's discussion up. Please watch this video, subscribe to the channel, like it. Leave your comments. Go follow Swamiji on Twitter. I've left his Twitter handle too. And if you want to support the Charvak podcast, you know the drill. You can become a member on YouTube. Go subscribe on Patreon. Buy the merch or send your donations to UPI. I will see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.